Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new criminal case. In 1971, in the rural community of Belmesta Moreleda in Andalusia, Maria Camara Gomez, married, named Pereira, noticed a dark stain on her kitchen floor as she was cleaning. It was quite bizarre and almost looked like a face. She scrubbed vigorously but could not get it out. Despite all her efforts, not only did the stain not come out, but shadows suddenly began to appear on the floor and many others on the wall. They became more and more prominent. Much to the family's dismay, new images began to appear. From that day forward, the Pereira family would never know another moment of peace. That was the beginning of the disturbing tale of La Casa de las Caras, or the House of Faces, which would deeply shatter the tranquility of the simple Spanish town. Where did these faces come from? Was it a chemical phenomenon, an optical illusion, or hoax, or perhaps some kind of frightening paranormal activity? Was it possible that Maria herself was behind the whole thing? Please join us to discover this most unusual story, which intrigued journalists, mediums, dowsers, clerics, psychics, and the police during the final decade of Franco's dictatorship. Belmes de la Moraleta is a city in Andalusia like many others in the province of Jaén, surrounded by mountains, forests, and sun-baked valleys. In 1971, it had a population of about 2,000 residents. There, life was marked by the routine and manual labor common to rural areas. On Sundays, the sound of angelus bells announced mass and all the villagers went together to church. On one side sat all the women dressed in black and on the other were all men wearing barrettes as well as grim expressions on their plump faces. Together, they would pray for rain that would help their crops. Life for these people was simple of hard work and perpetually frozen in time. The capital of Madrid might as well have been another planet since it seemed so far away. Besides, who would ever want to go there? Those who did want to immigrate usually went to France, Germany or Switzerland, but never to Madrid. Then there was the Generalissimo Franco, who strongly encouraged Spaniards to remain in Spain. Those who did leave aroused suspicion because only thieves and traitors had a constant need to flee, not the honest citizens. Getting into trouble with the civil guard, who also maintained law and order on buses by caning people on the legs, was to be avoided in order to live a peaceful existence during this era. Indeed, Spain during the 1960s was primarily a dictatorship where Catholicism had been established as the one and only state religion. The country's close relationship to France, which was committed to secularism, stopped at the border. Your faith was pervasive and ever-present. At home, at school, in the hospital, and every other institution. That was the way Francesco Franco wanted it. The Cotillo was uncharismatic, an unskilled orator, bigoted, misogynistic, and steeped in outdated oriental modesty. 
he still recalled the blurry figures of women cowered in white from head to toe that encountered during his lengthy stay in Morocco. They had virtue. In Madrid, as well as every other city in the country, masses was considered the one and only bit of entertainment for the whole weekend. Young people from the intellectual and middle class felt suffocated and dreamt of escape. They longed for music, dance, and sexual freedom, just like there was throughout the rest of Europe. However, it's important to remember that Spain at the time was culturally closer to Tangiers or Algeria than it was to Paris or Berlin. In Belmez de la Moraleta, little time was spent thinking about concerns of the wealthy and important when there were other important matters. The harvest season was about to come to an end. A small celebration was to be held in the days that followed as a reward for everyone's hard work in the sweltering heat. With the farmers from Belmez de la Morelda really were native Spaniards, their serious proud and uncommunicative nature was a reminder of the Arabic part of their genetic heritage, which had taken root in the area over many centuries. Moreover, even the cathedral in Jain had been a mosque a few centuries ago, a fact that no one, not even the parish priest Don Antonio Molina, could deny. The part of the story takes us to the Calais Real Coast, a hilly but paved region decorated with wrought iron balconies where Bougainvillea abounded. In late August 1971, the heat was scorching and dry. The streets were quiet. Women and children were napping while the men were still in the fields. A few cats dozed in the doorways. At number 5 Della Rio Rodriguez Acosta, a white-painted house in the minimalist style with a screened balcony and an electric meter hanging about the door, the owner of the property was already awake and hard at work in the kitchen. Maria Gomez Y. Camara was a traditional housewife. She was 49 years old and had dark hair and had a stern appearance. She had lived there ever since her husband, Juan Pereira, had brought her there from her birthplace to fill the void left by his deceased first wife. The inside of the house completely reflected Maria's personality and her values. It was simple, basic, practical, and without luxuries. Icons, a calendar of the saints, and replicas of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin holding her baby were the only ornaments in the home of this woman who had known nothing but a life of labor and hardship. Religion was the only solace in her difficult daily life. On August 23rd, the air was stifling outside. Maria was glad to have a kitchen far from the sun's merciless rays. The coolness afforded by the natural stone with which her kitchen had been built made it feel like it was in the middle of winter when the temperature outside hovered close to 37 degrees in the shade. It was a form of air conditioning that craftsmen in the area had perfected over the course of centuries. Maria was in a hurry. In half an hour, her husband Juan and his sons Miguel, Diego, and Alfonso would be returning from the field for lunch. Like any other rural family, they ate large, hot meals even in the middle of a heat wave. Today's dish was chickpeas, too, that Maria had left to simmer throughout the afternoon. Sometimes she adds scraps of meat that she had on her hands, such as ham, shanks, or even an oxtail picked up from a slaughterhouse. The housewife lifted the cower and gathered a bundle of sticks to begin baking the bread. Glancing down, she noticed something on the floor. A stain. Well, how about that? Yet, she remembered having spent the morning scrubbing the kitchen from top to bottom like she usually did every third day. Maria was a cleanliness freak. She kept her house clean and expected that anyone who visited her home would do the same. She was horrified by the sight of unwashed dishes lying around, tablecloths smeared with grease, and bathrooms that didn't smell like lavender soap. When her husband and his sons went off at the crack of dawn to plow the field, she started scrubbing, mending socks, 
doing the laundry, sewing on buttons, ironing the sheets, and dusting. Her work never stopped until they came home, which was usually around 8 p.m. The men generally stop off at the pub before going home for dinner. Annoyed by the stained floor, the energetic 50-year-old grabbed a cloth and began scouring the spot with alcohol, but it didn't seem to want to come out. She even poured some more bleach over it, but it was of no use. The stain was so stubborn that even a stiff bristle brush did nothing to remove it. Juan Pereira Sanchez came home, followed by his three sons. Maria, who remained focused on the stain on the floor, hadn't made any progress with that evening's meal. Her husband quickly became upset when he saw that the table hadn't been set for dinner. He grumbled a bit. His wife pointed to the spot on the floor. Look at this. Can you tell me what that is? But Juan was impatient. Anything that involved domestic work didn't concern him as long as it was done. At that point, all he wanted from her was dinner. The next day when she got up, Maria headed straight for the kitchen. And lo and behold, during the night, the stain had spread and was now in the shape of a perfect oval. Later that morning, two of her neighbors stopped by and noticed the same thing. They didn't understand it. Convinced that a group effort could tackle the stubborn stain, they grabbed their buckets and scrubbed brushes, used up entire bottles of cleaning detergent, and spent a good 20 minutes vigorously scrubbing the floor. But their efforts were in vain. That evening, all anyone could talk about was a shape that refused to come out even after bleach. Maria still had more surprises in store when two days later, something unbelievable happened. The shape now looked like a face with a distinct feature, as though it had been drawn with a charcoal. When she saw that face now seemed to be watching and following her every move, Maria started screaming in fright, running out in the street and waking up the whole neighborhood. I thought that I was losing my mind. I was afraid that everyone would think I was crazy. It was staring at me just like a flesh and blood human being. Soon, her husband and her sons also noticed a curious shape that had spread out on the kitchen's concrete floor. In the days that followed, nothing changed. The face continued to study Maria with its sad yet inquisitive eyes. She thought she was living a bad dream. Juan Pereira and his eldest son, Miguel, decided to demolish the floor tile and replace it in a way of solving the problem. Once their work was completed, they poured concrete and covered the whole thing. The face disappeared. Maria let out a sigh of relief and believed that she had rid herself of the problem once and for all. The calm was short-lived. On September 10, 1971, a new face, more or less similar to the first one, appeared in another spot in the small house. Once again, she scrubbed with detergent and once again she found herself living a nightmare. The story spread so quickly throughout the small town that it became the topic of discussion for every resident in the community. But what the devil was going on in the Pereira's house? It is important to recall that superstition occupied a significant place in popular memory. Many people believed that Juan and Maria's home was probably haunted by some spirit and that the faces were the work of Satan himself. Manuel Rodriguez Rivas, the mayor of Belmez, also heard the news and went to visit the Pereira family. He asked them not to do anything and simply wait until it went away. He offered them a more practical explanation. This was merely a bit of rust and nothing more. Some metals which naturally occurred in the stone may have created this optical illusion. The Pereira family heeded his advice and went back to their work and waited for it to stop. But that did not happen. In late September 1971, five new faces appeared one after another, in the kitchen and in the eldest son Alfonso's bedroom. The Pereira family were beside themselves. They were a resilient bunch with a good head on their shoulders, 
but this situation had seriously started to disturb them. Once again, they called the mayor to save the day. He's decided to send a contractor and bricklayer Sebastian to come and assess the situation. However, he failed to make any progress than others before him. He had never seen anything like this in his entire life as a mason. This was not a simple case of rust, and this was certain. By then, it had become necessary to turn to the church. Don Antonio Molina, the parish priest, also made a visit to the Pereira's house and blessed the house in hopes of warding off any evil spirits. Once again, it was a waste of time. Not a day went by without some new faces turned up in the house. Frightened and plagued with doubt, Maria and her family were no longer able to sleep at night. By this time, the Pereira's case was all anyone could talk about and the news spread throughout the community and the rest of the province before eventually reaching Madrid, the country's epicenter. For the first time, local newspapers chose to speak about it publicly. The Pereira family is asking for help in solving this mystery, read the newspaper's headline. In Madrid, among the literary circles in the country's administrative capital, there were skeptics. In fact, many people believed that this was a hoax set up by Maria and her family simply as a way of making some money. What sane person with a shred of common sense would ever believe such nonsense? Faces in cement? What's next? In spite of repression and media censorship during the era, the supernatural event caused a great media sensation. National radio and television outlets decided to go to Jane to see the phenomenon with their own eyes. In Belmez, the townspeople who were used to staying at home were both intrigued and flattered by the presence of television cameras and reporters with their beards, long hair, and bell bottoms. Equipped with their tape recorders, they hoped to gather as many witness reports on the subject as they could. For all the editors, columnists, cameramen, journalists, and reporters, the doors were wide open, the coffee was served, and tongues wagged. We were afraid that the same thing would happen to us too, you know? I saw a face emerge right before my very eyes. My daughter was with me and she saw it too. As soon as anyone entered the Pereira's house, they felt like they were being watched by something lurking in the shadows. Eagerly, the young teams from the RTVE, Spanish Radio and Television, asked for more. There was enough material to fill the whole newspaper columns. To gather the most information and as many versions as possible, they broke into small groups of two or three. They descended upon the town, armed with microphones and cameras, as they knocked on every door at all hours of the day and night. Everyone in the village went through the same thing. Maria and her husband, their neighbors, the priest and every employee in the mayor's office. We opened our doors to them, who treated them with great care and kindness. Then they went ahead and wrote that they were simple people who believed in witchcraft. That's what the newspaper said about us, complained one Pereira's former neighbors. Wearing her ever-present black dress, surrounded by her husband and children, Maria sat in the middle of the room with her arms folded, intimidated by the intrusive presence of cameras and by all the strangers who were bombarding her with questions. Her son Miguel, who was more talkative than she was, took responsibility for answering the reporters as best as he could. They all took a seemingly endless number of photos of the house, the housewife and her kitchen floor. Quickly, the Pereira's family became a victim of their own success if it could be called such. In truth, they were distraught and wanted to regain some semblance of normality. After the hordes of reporters left, then they were replaced by crowds of curiosity seekers who arrived by the bus loads from Granada, Barcelona, and Valencia. Like the rest of the country, they were intrigued by this most unusual story. 
However, when they saw the lady of the house, who greeted them shyly, spoke little, and looked quite stern, they began to raise questions. Reporters and onlookers from all over Spain never hesitated to try to insulate themselves into her private life, and her neighbors were only too eager to enlighten them. She was born Maria Gomez y Camara on January 5, 1990, into a rural family that includes 10 brothers and sisters. Her parents were farmers who had always lived off the land. In the 1930s, during the heights of the Civil War, Maria married Juan Pereira y Sanchez, a widower who was already the father of three, in order to escape her own tyrannical father. The young bride adopted the three orphans and treated them kindly. She then gave birth to three other children, all of whom were boys, Miguel, Diego, and Alfonso. The Rodriguez de Costa Street, the Pereira's house, as well as the two other attached houses had always been inhabited by members of her husband's family. In fact, his maternal grandparents still lived there. Maria was described as being sullen, secretive, reserved, and having little inclination for gossip like other women. However, when she did speak, she expressed herself simply and consciously in the way the people from the country did. Even the most skeptical of journalists found it difficult to question her words. She didn't appear to be making it up, and neither did her husband nor her children. They all seemed to be genuinely frightened by what was happening in their home. Yet, there were still some naysayers who maintained that she was a woman who behaved strangely. One of her distant relatives recalled that when Maria was little, she could sometimes be heard talking to imaginary friends. But Maria denied this allegation. Although paranormal activities held a prominent place in Spain popular culture, the Franco regime would have none of it. The story had taken on national proportions, which forced the municipality of Belmez to quickly launch an investigation. Maria and her family were questioned repeatedly by the authorities. At the request of the chief of police, the lady of the house was even forced to submit to a lie detector test. The result was negative. Maria wasn't making it up and was telling the truth. The police furrowed their brows and sent her home. Although she was asthmatic, she still stoically greeted the steady stream of visitors who came to camp out on her doorstep and was incapable of shutting the door on them. Those who didn't make it into the two-room kitchen remained glued to the windows watching the family go about their daily lives and taking photos of them as if they were a fairground curiosity. We no longer have a family life. We never had a hot meal during the week because the kitchen was always full of people. Those who weren't able to come inside watched us from the window and begged me to open the door for them. The police had to be called umpteen times to limit the number of intruders in our home. Just like in Madrid, the local newspapers had a field day, pushing their voyeurism to its limits. The first to cover the story was Leo Casado, a reporter from the local paper, El Ideal, who gave his article the sensational headline, A Face Appears Then Disappears in a Fireplace in a Small Town in Andalusia. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Yeah. Another paper, El Pueblo, responded in kind. For quite some time, the two newspapers went back and forth covering the event. Not a day went by without some new photos or testimonies scrambling to make the headlines. Argentine civil governor Ruiz de Cordoba himself paid a visit to Maria's home at the request of the Minister of the Interior at the time. He had sent there with the task of putting an end to the media frenzy. Some were then thrown in jail or had their news coverage suppressed by authorities. The Pereira's home turned into a site of archaeological expedition. It was decided that samples of the concrete in the kitchen, where the faces continued to watch each visitor, needed to be taken. Once extracted, these samples were sent to the Instituto de Ceramica Vitiri, more commonly known by the initials ICV, for scientific assessment. Upon examinations, the expert findings were conclusive. There were no traces of pigments, paints, or any other material in the stone. Other tests followed, such as carbon-14 and X-ray testing, which all yielded the same result. None of the samples bore any traces of paint, nitrate, silver salt, or any other metal like to have decomposed and transformed into faces on the concrete. Ultraviolet and infrared photographs were also taken on the premises, and they too produced the same findings. Entire chunks of concrete were removed to be examined under a microscope. Again, there is nothing new to report. No human intervention either from a skilled craftsman or a painter was responsible for producing these strange figures. Instead of reassuring the public, the latest news unleashed a slew of theories, each one more implausible than the last. A renowned professor of parapsychology, German Diogomosa, learned of the story through the newspaper and graciously offered to help shed some light on the mystery. He made a trip to Belmez, joined by one of his colleagues, professor and medium Hans Bender from the University of Freiburg. They refused to limit themselves to making routine evaluations and decided to run other tests. They were both convinced that some kind of paranormal activity was at the heart of it all. Consequently, they installed microphones in every room in Pereira's house in order to conduct acoustical tests, which were called in the field jargon psychophonic recordings, wherein someone was given the job of transcribing on a typewriter while the sound machine recorded. In their opinion, there was no doubt that the people who had died under horrendous circumstances continued to reside in the Pereira's home. The stone was also known to be able to preserve vibratory messages for long periods of time. Nothing happened for the first few days of the investigation, but at the end of the fifth day, the initial dialogue began to make itself heard. Several psychophonic recordings were made, some of which were truly disturbing as such. Maria, save me. I want to leave. It hurts. German. Keep chopping and digging. Lift the cement. I'm still buried. All hell is breaking loose. They're coming. Another specialist investigator, Pedro Amoros, recorded the following message at 3 o'clock in the morning. Kill him. He's a breach. And also Sofia. Socorro. 
Names like Mama, Miguel, Manolo and Angel kept coming up in time and again on the recordings. Professor German de Orgomosa put Maria under hypnosis. She began speaking in a man's voice and asked the specialists to dig deeper than three meters if they wished to find the answer. Occasionally, there were other voices that joined on the conversation between Maria and the professors. For example, when she said that these souls have never been able to rest, another voice chimed in adding, Justice! Pedro Amoros asked Maria to ask one of the spirits a question out loud in hopes of getting an answer. She said, Why have you chosen my house? There was no answer. But as night approached, and the question was asked once more, one of the microphones recorded this response. There has been a breach. After that, a second investigation was launched. To rule out any possibility of a hoax, and at the request of Professor German, the house was locked and its windows were sealed for three months. As a result, all access to it was prohibited, and even the Pereira family themselves had to stay with their relatives in the neighboring town. A team from the parapsychologist staff took the final photos of the prototypes before locking the double door. Everything was done according to procedure and under the supervision of lawyer Antonio Fernandez, who was given the responsibility of writing the report of the proceedings. The wait began in an atmosphere filled with anticipation. Three months later, the entire team of experts, the mayor, and everyone else involved met up in front of the barricaded house to determine the verdict. And lo and behold, in a dramatic turn of events, 16 new faces had emerged since the house had been locked while others had completely changed places. The paranormal explanation that German had been seeking had come to light. This recent piece of evidence, the three-month investigation as well as the findings from the psychophonic recordings, had been made public to all contributed to providing a kind of legitimacy and credibility to what many had mocked and dismissed as fraud and deception cooked up by Maria and the mayor of the community in order to attract tourists to this far-off boondocks that no one ever considered visiting. Upon reopening the house after the investigation, visitors went back to their old habits and descended upon the premises with renowned vigor. There were even some celebrities among the visitors, including champion bullfighters, famous flamenco dancers like Cameron Della Isla, and even Cordillo Franco's grandchildren, stepdaughters, nephews, secretly came from the capital. However, the whole affair was beginning to challenge the Franco regime's limit of tolerance. In February 1973, Mayor of Elmez, Manuel Rodriguez Rivas, received a letter on his desk calling upon him to put an end to this travesty. He was given an ultimatum. It was either that or prison. It was up to him to decide. As a self-confident man of good faith who was convinced of Maria's innocence, the mayor refused to bend to the will of the repressive state powers. He maintained his position that, in his opinion, this was anything but a hoax. It had been almost four years since a large share of the Spanish media had been transfixed by the story of the faces of Belmez. But soon the curiosity of the early days began to run its course. This lasted till November 1974, when a face that resembled a replica of the Virgin found in Jean Cathedral reappeared in Pereira's kitchen, which had since been converted into a living room. This generated more fear than earlier ones. By delving a bit deeper, reporters discovered that several generations of Pereira's family had lived in the house in the past during the dark period of the Civil War and that some of them had even died there. By going through the anthropological documents from the area, they learned that decapitated skeletons could possibly have been buried beneath the kitchen floor, bones that may have been close to 700 years old. They likely belonged to heretics who had been decapitated and then buried in a mass grave. Torrential rains may have then displaced the foundation of the Barreras' home. 
According to the provincial archives, the site had previously been a Roman colony. During the long period of Muslim domination over Andalusia, a mosque had been built over it, only to be later replaced by a church during the reconnaissance led by Isabel the Catholic. Two graveyards, Muslims and Christians, also existed at the location during the 1700s. In order to put their minds at ease and resolve the matter once and for all, the authorities gave permission for the kitchen floor to be completely demolished. And what did they find? Headless bones were scattered everywhere. The theory about decapitated heretics seemed to have been confirmed. The remains were gathered together in a vault and sent off to be examined. It was determined that most of them dated back to the 13th century. As for the orders of the mayor, Manuel Rivas, a burial and a mass was held for the remaining probably tormented souls in the hopes that this might allow them to move on. Maria and her family thought that they had finally gotten past this terrifying tale of faces and they could perhaps return to normal life in the coming days. But it seemed that their assumptions had been premature. The paranormal activity continued at a dizzying pace. Now, it was not just one face, but several that kept appearing, disappearing and reappearing randomly the next day in another room of the house. In addition to the faces of the men, now there were even women, children and infants with increasingly clear and realistic features. Some of them even appeared to look frightened or as if they were pleading. Additional trunks, busts, arms, hands, legs also appeared from time to time. It was clear that even though the authorities believed that they were helping the family by removing the skeletons, the paranormal activity had not calmed down. It was around the time when many people began to suspect that there might be a connection between Maria and the proliferation of faces. In fact, eyewitnesses swore that even she was sad, tired or sick that the faces took on the same pale and bleak appearances as if her mood or state or health directly affected them. In 1977, when she required an operation for a health issue, Maria, who dreaded the procedure, cried very often, and the faces on the ground seemed to commiserate with her by taking on the same saddened appearance. During her hospitalization, Maria's son took photos of these stir-filled eyes. As she convalesced, she was contacted several times by mediums who were convinced of the supposed phenomenon as known as telepathy, which involves a person, in this case Maria, materializing somewhere else. She refused to follow up on their request. It continued that way until the appearance in 1978 of one of the most intriguing prototypes, later dubbed Lepava. Lepava first appeared without any apparent features in December 1978. He was reminiscent of those old Byzantine figurines with prominent eyes, thin nose, curly hair, dark mustache, and slender mouth spitting up what appeared to be blood. Those who had seen it were convinced that it could only be Christ himself. The very duplicate of the holy face of the cathedral of Jane or even the holy shroud of Turin. Had Maria managed to resuscitate Christ after the heretics of the Reconquista? Ever since Lepava had appeared next to the chimney, parishioners were starting to abandon the church so they could pray at their neighbor's home since they were convinced that a miracle was happening right before their very eyes. In their opinion, the next coming of Christ might be imminent if things continued at this rate. Naturally, the rumors of a Christ hidden in the floor tiles of a rural kitchen eventually came to the attention of the Bishop of Andalusia. The all-powerful church was determined to do everything in its power to bring an end to this phenomenon. It was the beginning of what would come to be known as Operation Trident. The government relied on ecclesiastical, political and media institutions to exert pressure and silence rumors. Now, it was no longer just a matter of a few skeletons of heretics, but rather the Holy Father and for the Franco regime in Spain. 
this was not something to be dismissed lightly. Now, all of the sound tests that had been conducted by Professor Orgamusa, Professor Hans Bender, and the rest of their parapsychologist colleagues had been completely forgotten. A genuine inquisition was then launched for the whole of Yaden region. The priest of Belmez, Don Antonio, bore the full brunt of his superior's wrath. He was forced to admit in writing that the whole thing was nothing but a hoax, a joke that was abetted by everyone in the village, with each person adding to the misinformation to the point where it became a reality. In short, this was a collective psychosis that involved the whole town and that needed to be eradicated much like a case of gangrene. Convinced that Maria Gomez hadn't done anything wrong, the priest, just like the mayor before him, held to his position. It would cost him his reputation and his job from which he would eventually resign and then leave Velmez Parish. The most effective and dissuasive way for any dictatorship to function relied on the use of police force. They were sent to put pressure on the Pereiras and to make them admit that the faces had been painted with soot, oil and vinegar by their eldest son, who had a talent for painting. The city council became involved in the case and Mayor Rivas found himself in great deal of trouble, threatened with prison for a second time, accused of conspired with the Pereira family and the other townspeople in the hopes of stimulating tourism in the small community of Belmez. He was subjected to pressure and intimidation from the authorities. In late 1979, as the bishop had done before him, he too eventually resigned from his position as mayor. As for the media, the publication of the contradictory theories managed to double and even triple the general interest in the story. The phenomenon, which had been kept alive for quite some time, nevertheless began to die down over time. In the early 1980s, it was no longer a topic of interest to many people and was added to the list of urban legends. Spain was basking in the heights of the volatile Movida era, a liberal and avant-garde movement that had overwhelmed the lives of Spanish people and had challenged the values so deeply held by the state. Now it was time for fun and frivolity after so many years of austerity and dictatorship. Citizens now free from the restrictions of an intrusive religion and a leader who ruled them over with an iron fist preferred to live for the moment and not worry about tomorrow. Modeling themselves after punks in Britain, the youngsters of Madrid wandered the streets carelessly with their wild and colorful hairstyles. Homosexuality and androgyny were starting to become acceptable with both men and women flaunting their eccentricities. They wore heavy makeup, had dyed hair, piercings, fishnet stockings, studded jeans and dark jackets as they partied until dawn. The popular expression, Madrid Mimata, was born. The tale of the faces of Belmez once again fell into obscurity, just like the Franco regime. No one wanted to hear about these fanciful tales anymore as they were nothing but a remainder of a dark period that everyone wanted to wipe out from their memory. Apart from the mystery, the speculation and various theories, what other explanations might have been there for this moving, living teleplastic phenomenon? The prototype dub La Pava initially appeared in form of a face with no visible features. The nose, the mouth and the eyes only came later and the same thing occurred with the other faces. Among the theories advanced over the years of the investigation, there were a few worth noting. According to Belmez City Hall records, the Pereira's house would have been located on a cursed site. Juan Pereira's grandparents, who were still alive at the time of these events, swore that well before the faces first appeared, that their granddaughter often cried during the night because she feared at the moaning and weeping of the invisible people. The neighbors echoed those sentiments and claimed that the furniture in the home often switched places. Occasionally, the furniture even blocked access to the door leading to the street. 
Eventually, they had to seek help from a so-called healer from Sierra de Carzola to quieten the paranormal activity. According to the priest Molina's maid, she admits to witness the spontaneous combustion of kitchen towels and seeing broken glasses on the ground without anyone ever touching them. If Rue Rodriguez de Acosta was indeed the resting place of headless skeletons, then why weren't any of the other houses affected by the phenomenon of these faces like the Pereira family was? That was how the theory that a direct link existed between Maria and these teleplastic phenomena came to be accepted. It seemed likely that it all started as a result of a teleplastic projection that occurred during one of Maria's countless asthma attacks. The power of her mind had somehow ended up triggering the emergence of the faces. Some people believe that the faces will eventually disappear after her death. We'll have to wait and see, recalled an elderly woman somewhat mockingly during an interview on the Telesino television station. It should be noted, however, during the periodic visits to the site, neither Maria nor anyone else in her family ever received anything from their visitors, even though some may have left a tip as they left. If they ever did, the Pereira family always vigorously refused. The only consideration she did receive was the construction of a new adjacent kitchen since the old one was no longer functional following its partial demolition for the purposes of investigation. The elderly woman had never financially benefited from the phenomenon as she was accused by her detractors, which had disrupted her life and that of her family. She had never moved away nor did she change her modest lifestyle after faces began to appear and she continued to live as she always had done before. Her husband Juan died in 1997 and Maria, who was suffering from a gallbladder problem, never left the house anymore but was regularly visited by her neighbors. She was surrounded by photographs of her grandchildren as well as the faces on the ground that had never gone away. She died in 2004 at the age of 85 after many long years of battling illness. Many believed that the death of Maria would finally bring an end to the recurrence of the phenomenon. However, that was not what happened. Many of the faces remained while others disappeared and new ones continue to appear in other rooms as her children reported. To date, there have been more than 3,000 faces scattered throughout the house. As a final tribute to the deceased, the name Caraz de Belmez had been registered with Spain's Patents and Trademark Office in 2005. The official version was that the figures all had a direct link with the victims of the Spanish Civil War who were murdered in the sanctuary of La Virgin de la Cabaz and that Maria had unwittingly reproduced their suffering through the power of her subconscious. The intriguing and disturbing faces of La Pava still continues to be the subject of many investigations. With the advent of the internet and new graphic software, it has been possible to draw a connection between the face and a photograph of a former executioner and civil guard. The resemblance was striking. The same oval faces, pale with fine features and dark mustache. His name was Miguel Shimoro, and he had been responsible for the deaths of hundreds during the conflict that had shaken up the country at the time. There have been no new manifestations of the phenomenon since 2006. The Pereira's home was subsequently put up for sale, but there were no buyers. Maria's Harris eventually abandoned it and allowed people to visit it for free of charge, much like an open museum. For almost 40 years, the story of the faces of Belmez of La Morelda has captured the interest of those from Spain and abroad. Despite all the investigations conducted at site and all the attempts to find a definitive answer, the inquiry which began in 1960s is still at a starting point. The mystery remains unsolved. We're at the end of our show for today. 
so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.